All right, so it's Father's Day, so I have a question. Well, I'm, I'm speaking, I know, I don't have to speak into the microphone for you guys, but just in case anyone else is listening, um, I'm gonna talk into the microphone. Um, does, I have a question. How do you know your dad loves you? Yeah. Ooh, okay, so do you want to say that into the microphone? Or do you want me to summarize for the group? Okay, um, don't want to put you on the spot if you don't want to be on the spot. So takes care of us, gets us, buys us the things that we need. How else do we know our dad loves us? Do you want to talk in here or do you want to tell me? Okay. If we're hurt, he helps us. That's excellent. Did you have something you want to share? Yeah. He says so. Yeah, that's a good one. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay. Well, in our, you know, God is our heavenly father. And in our passage that Gary just read for us, um, the last verse, Romans 5, 8, says that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when we were perfect and had everything just right. Or it doesn't say when we followed all the rules and did everything right and didn't bother our brother or poke our sister or whatever else. So at the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died. God shows his love for us in sending Jesus to die for us. And I want you to remember this morning that just like your dad loves you just the way you are, that your heavenly father also loves you just the way you are. And he proved it to us by sending Jesus to live and to die for us. Now, I think most of you guys got the um, secret Father's Day stuff up there, but if you haven't yet, you can grab that and, um, and color that for your dad. All right, but you guys can go back to your seat. That's what I got for you. Thank you. Hmm? Okay. Great. How's everyone doing? Great. So um, I'm going to also start with a question, just like Meg did. Mine might not be as profound. But um, if you had to explain yourself to someone, like at the deepest level, who you are, your essential nature, um, what would you say? What's the truest thing about you? The thing that everyone needs to know first, and the thing that you need to know first. Now, I recognize this is an overwhelming question. Um, a little like existential dread is wrapped up in this question. So, you know, we'll lighten, lighten it up with an example from one of our friends in the Hundred Acre Wood. Um, you may know him. His name is Tigger. Um, and he has a song that he likes to sing. Um, and he sings it anytime he interacts with anyone ever, um, which I think is a great quality about someone. Um, you may know it, it goes like this. I'm not gonna sing it. Um, the wonderful thing about Tiggers 
um, is tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber, their bottoms are made out of springs, they're bouncy, trouncy, ouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. So embedded in the Tigger song is a couple of things that Tigger thinks you need to know about him at the, at the most basic level. One is that Tiggers are wonderful. The other is that he's profoundly alone. He's deeply, deeply alone. <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> but he seems happy, so we shouldn't feel too bad for Tigger. Now, if you were to write a Tigger song about yourself, what would be in it? What would, it, what would you include? Would it be something about your job? Um, after all, when we ask children what they want to be when they grow up, we're referring to their job. Um, this seems to be the way we think about things. Would it be your family? Would it be your mistakes, your failures, and your inadequacies? Would it be your opinions, your ideologies? What, at the base level, is the most true thing about you? I ask this question because our passage seems to have a suggestion with what to include in our Tigger song. Paul begins with, Therefore, since we've been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We start there, and everything else that Paul has to say about us, about God, about life, about everything, begins there. Everything we need to know builds from that insight. Everything else in our passage begins with peace and righteousness, an unshakable sense of justness, goodness, that we all have through the faithfulness of Christ and the work of Christ. Now, we're in ordinary time. Um, If you've been around Oak for a while, you'll recognize our ordinary time table sash, sacred tablecloth thing. Um, I'm sure there's there's a name for this. Meg would know it. I I did not. What's it called? The hangings. The hangings? Really? I learned learned something new today. Um, The hanging. This is our ordinary time hanging. Um, it has green on it because, um, especially in godly play, we know ordinary time as the good green growing time. Um, and it's no coincidence that what we call ordinary time begins after Easter and Pentecost. So Easter and Pentecost shape what it means to live in the ordinary. And that's not very ordinary. A world shaped by the inauguration of Jesus's kingdom through Easter and then the empowerment of the church to enact that kingdom through the Holy Spirit is nothing ordinary. The life we now call ordinary is characterized by an extraordinary explosion of God's love and all-pervading presence. The unconditional love of God has been freely given to us through Jesus Christ, and it's almost like this big bang that gives birth to a new universe that you need to live in, even though it's amazing and you can't wrap your head around it. Everything else we encounter in today's text builds on the foundation of unfathomable love and miraculous peace. This love and peace are so confounding and radical that it could be, you could easily spend a lifetime just trying to orient yourself to it. But there's no time. Paul has a lot more to say. This is his first half of the first sentence. And um, there's so much more to build on that foundation. 
I think about it a little bit like um, if, if, if maybe some of you were first-generation college students, this was my father's experience, um, first person in his family to go to college, you get that acceptance letter and you, you set foot on campus and you're just stunned. You can't believe that this opportunity was made available to you, that, that you were able to work so hard and, and, and reach this goal. But you kind of have to start taking classes, you know? You kind of have to have to forget about how exciting and, and, and magical and wonderful the opportunity is, and you, and you just have to focus. Um, um, there, there's no time to be starstruck. There's too much work to do. Another example, so yesterday the AC stopped. We've had trouble with the AC at our house, and it stopped working yesterday. And I was, like, trying to figure out why, and um, I tried to, like, learn as much as I could about air conditioning. And you guys, it is so crazy that we can do air conditioning like like it's so complicated there's something called a condenser and something called a compressor there's multiple fans there's like two different systems it's it's wild and um, I kind of got like stunned at how complex it is to just keep the indoor temperature lower than the outdoor temperature um, but I, I like really need to take it for granted. Like I really need to be able to enter a room and it's cool and I need to move on with my life. But, but you could enter a room and it's cool and just spend like your, the, your entire time in that room just thinking about that and focused on that. But you really shouldn't because you probably got other stuff to do. Paul in this passage doesn't give us time to orient ourselves to this new reality. This is his first clause. He doesn't even give us a sentence. He just says, okay, so since we've been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he has a lot more to say, and we don't have time to orient ourselves. So wrap your head around that. The first thing you need to know about yourself, the most foundational, most true thing about you is that you have righteousness and peace with God. There's nothing that you could possibly imagine that could prevent you from entering into God's peace and having the love that God has offered you. All barriers have been totally done away with. This new ordinary has wild implications. Within this sentiment is not only the truest thing about ourselves, but is also the truest thing about God. Paul's synonym for being justified in this passage is having the love of God poured into our hearts. God's love is, first, uh, is the first and most essential thing there is to know about God. Love is the refrain of God's Tigger song. Before God is a creator or a redeemer, or a provider, or a judge, or a guide. God is love. In Father, Son, and Spirit, God exists in an eternal communion of love. And into that communion, we are held by the love offered to us in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, points this out in in a really great quote that I read this week. Um, I think we've got it on a slide if we, yes, uh, is it cut off on there? No, it's just cut off for me. Okay, great. He says, it's not by ideals or programs or by conscience or by duty or by responsibility or virtue that reality can be confronted and overcome, but simply and solely by the perfect love of God. And here again, it's not by some general idea of love that this is achieved, but by the really lived love of God in Jesus Christ. 
This love of God does not withdraw from, withdraw from reality into noble souls secluded from the world. It experiences and suffers the reality of the world in all its hardness. The world exhausts its fury against the body of Christ, but tormented, he forgives the world its sin. And this is how reconciliation is accomplished. So, so at root, the way that God wants to engage with the world isn't through a set of ideas that you need to know or, or, or doctrines you need to memorize or actions you need to perform. It's love. This is the first, most foundational, most true thing about God. Earlier this week, I was on a road trip with my interns coming back from a, a retreat that we did in Asheville. Um, and somehow we had some grocery bags in the back and somehow a pancake syrup bottle busted open and exploded all over all of our luggage, uh, which was wonderful and, you know, made the whole car smell like pancakes. And it was great. Um, it got all over the floor mat and all over everyone's bags and we had to like stop and like wash everything. Um, good fun. But what we find in God is the kind of love that doesn't stay in a neat container. It's been hastily packed in a grocery bag on the way out of an Airbnb. And so it leaks out and it finds its way into unexpected places. It's sticky and it's hard to remove. It makes everything smell like pancakes. God's love finds its way into places where you might think love should be absent. Places of great despair hopelessness, isolation, and loss. In fact, Paul puts great emphasis in our passage on exactly those places as, as, as sites to experience the love of God. Just look at how he talks about hope. Hope is not optimism. Hope is, is the sometimes foolish belief that despite all the evidence... There's something more going on, something unseen. In our passage, this hope in God isn't cheap. It doesn't come easy. Hope, at least the kind of hope that it takes to carry you through the pain that you will accumulate in your life, is a hard-won hope. Our passage says that this sort of hope is only the product of character. And that character that brings hope is formed over many years of endurance. And that endurance is born from problems, from pain. Now hope like this, in the midst of suffering, should really put you to shame. It's naive, it's ignorant, it seems to ignore all the available data. But Paul says that this hope doesn't bring us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul talks a lot about suffering in this passage, and it, and it may seem strange because it's a passage about God's love and peace, and so why are we spending so much time on suffering? But I think Paul is answering the question that we all might have, and that the Roman Christians especially had, which is, if, if this is true, why is it still so hard? If God's love is so profound and, and abundant and it makes its way into every place, why am I still in so much pain? Paul's answering the question that suffering proves that you were wrong, right? 
Suffering proves that the hope you had was foolish, doesn't it? When you've run out of things, when you when when you've run out of things to boast about, aren't you suffering? When has your hope been proven foolish? Isn't it when pain determines the course of your life? If you want to look for evidence that someone's hope is meaningless, shouldn't it be that they're suffering? But Paul looks straight into the eyes of anyone suffering and says, your, your dignity, your hope, your glory, and your belovedness is not going anywhere. In fact, God is with you here. God loves you here. And this leads us to, to kind of the final question that Paul approaches in this text, which is, when is the right time to love someone? He leaves us with the thought that Christ found us and loved us at just the right time, at just the right moment. Now, when was the right moment? It wasn't when we were presentable. It wasn't when we had ourselves together. It wasn't when our hinge profile was like just right. It wasn't when we uh, finally got on top of meal prep, you know, like, like, like we always kind of said we'd do. It wasn't when we were caught up on laundry or when we had all of our goals met. It wasn't when we were lovable. It was exactly when we were weak. Our incapacity to love, our sin, our wounds, all of the things that we believe ought to make us unlovable present God with the exact right conditions in which to lavishly pour out love for us. If this passage isn't true, and if the truest thing about us isn't our belovedness, even in the midst of pain and hopelessness, and if the truest thing about God isn't God's love, then loving someone who is hard to love is just about the silliest thing you could do. If, if love is not the central logic of the new ordinary, the, the central logic by which the world works, then loving someone when they're hard to love goes against all the best advice about boundaries and self-care and and mental health. But if it is true that we are held and loved by God in the middle of pain and darkness, then loving someone when they're hard to love is the best way for us to live into the reality of our own belovedness. I want to end this morning with a poem that I think captures this call to love people who are hard to love in moments when they're hard to love really well. It's by Thomas Lynch, who is an author and poet, um, but mostly he's a funeral director in a small town in Michigan. He spent decades being near to death, well acquainted with suffering and loss, and he's seen firsthand the fragile condition of human life, and he reflects all of this in these words is a poem called Local Heroes. He says, Some days, the worst that can happen, happens. The sky falls or evil overwhelms or the world as we have come to know it turns toward the eventual apocalypse long predicted in all the holy books. The end times of old grudge and grievances that bring us each to our oblivions. Still, maybe this is not the end at all, nor even the beginning of the end. 
rather one more in a long list of sorrows to be added to the ones thus far endured through what we have come to call our history. Another in that bitter litany that we will, if we survive it, have survived. God help us who must live through this, alive to the terror and open wounds, the heart torn, shaken faith, the violent, vengeful soul, the nerve exposed, the broken body so mingled with its breaking that it's lost forever. Lord, send us in our peril local heroes, someone to listen, someone to watch, someone to search and wait and keep the careful count of the dead and missing, the dead and gone but not forgotten. Some days all that can be done is to salvage one sadness from the mass of sadnesses, to bear one body home, to lay the dead out among their people, organize the flowers and the casseroles, write the obits, meet the mourners at the door, drive the dark procession down through town, toll the bell, dig the hole, tend the pyre. It's what we do. The day-long news is dire, full of true believers and politicos, bold talk of holy war and photo ops, but here, brave men and women pick up the pieces. They serve the living, caring for the dead. Here the distant battle is waged in homes. Like, like politics, all funerals are local. My hope for us, Oak family, is that knowing what we know about ourselves and about God and about the new ordinary time, that we would find and become local heroes, being loved in our worst moments and loving others in theirs. Let's pray. Dear God, we are eternally grateful for the love that you've showed us. And um, we just pray that you will give us the strength and um, resolve to accept that love, to, to say yes to it, and to move forward in, in this new status as righteous and beloved, that we can receive the power of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out for us and, and love the world. May we learn to live in this new ordinary time. In Jesus' name, amen.